Despite important strides in the fight against poverty in the last few decades, child poverty remains widespread and persistent, particularly in Africa. Two-thirds of children in sub-Saharan Africa face all manner of hardship. These include poor living conditions, low educational outcomes, high levels of malnutrition, and often high risks of exposure to different forms of violence. One in five children in sub-Saharan Africa are estimated to grow up in extreme monetary poverty, meaning they live in families without adequate incomes to make basic ends meet. In this month's episode of Between the Lines, we're joined by two co-editors of a new book entitled Putting Children First, New Frontiers in the Fight Against Child Poverty in Africa. IDS fellow Katie Rowland and Yasek Teferi from the Policy Institute of Ethiopia discussed this collaborative work, which included almost 40 authors from across Africa and the globe. They outline some of the initiatives aiming to reduce child poverty and how they hope that this book will push the frontiers by challenging existing narratives, exploring alternative understandings of the complexities and dynamics underpinning child poverty, and crucially, examining policy options that work. Interviewing Katie and Yisak is IDS research associate Sir Richard Jolly. So, Katie, why this book? Why does it matter? And why now? Well, there's two reasons, really. Firstly, child poverty in general is a very important issue to focus on. Growing up in poverty has very adverse and negative consequences for children, both um, at present, in the very moment, it undermines their well-being, and in the future, it undermines their potential to um, grow up as productive adults and live long, healthy, and happy lives. So there's a real negative effect for children themselves, also larger economic and social disadvantages if we don't focus on reducing poverty among children. Why focusing on this now is because, unfortunately, child poverty is still a very widespread problem, particularly in Africa. Around half of all children who live in extreme poverty around the world live in Africa. And so it's particularly important that we look at it in this continent. And I think the book says that the proportion of people in extreme poverty, children in extreme poverty, will be as high as 9 out of 10 in 2050, according to projections? It might be, yes. It also depends what measure you use to look at child poverty. So there is a little bit of a debate on that in the book as well in relation to monetary poverty versus multidimensional poverty. So do we look only at children living in income-poor households or do we also look at outcomes for children more directly, such as whether they go to school or not or whether they can visit a health clinic or a health facility when they're sick? The numbers, looking at how many children live in poverty exactly, differ depending on what kind of indicators you use. Yusak, tell us a little bit about the uh, research stories, people stories, experiences that are looked at in this book. Yeah, one lesson I just learned about the story of people is this is a focus on children in Africa and how diverse experience of children is depending on the context. As regards with the Ethiopian research, which is on longitudinal research we have been doing, that children start from the very beginning combining, generating income for themselves and investing in their uh, development. That's a, a strong evidence that we are looking at instead of being the government taking a responsibility or families take responsibility. Children still 
doing both their developmental aspect and at the same time subsist- their daily subsistence. These are the stories that we are looking uh, at now that the, which really manifestation of poverty in, uh, for children in Africa. What stood out for me is how widespread harm and violence is for children, both from a psychosocial and from a physical perspective. So contributions from research in Uganda, as well as Rwanda and Ethiopia, speak about the risk of harm being present in all spaces where children find themselves, at home, at school and in the wider community. And so the reason that this stood out for me is because issues of harm or violence are not always part of discussions on child poverty, Um, certainly when we think about uh, measurements. I think part of the reason is because it's difficult to measure and observe, and it might also be because children's lives might involve violence or harm, even if they don't live in poverty. So there's stories about bullying at school because children have to go to school barefoot or in tatty clothes, which are clearly linked to lack of income. But there's also stories about being beaten or being humiliated by teachers and harmful practices such as female genital mutilation. And these might be more linked to social norms, for example, or traditional practices. So what was really important for me when I read these stories is that studies of child poverty or studies of child well-being need to take the component of harm and violence more seriously, even if it is difficult to observe or to make part of a measurement. I was uh, impressed by the sections which emphasized the shame which some poor children felt and which hindered their later lives. And also the fact that for many, poverty was not a sort of uniform uh, difficulty. Uh, There was more severe poverty, less severe poverty at different times. What other things did you discover about poverty? Well, two things stand out for me from, from reading the same contributions, obviously. One is um, that children are very able to um, express their own views about living in poverty and that they're not necessarily what we think they are. What they find important uh, might be very different from what we might consider important, such as in in measures around child poverty that, that we develop. And so the aspect of shame or rather living with dignity or receiving respect from peers, from their parents from their teachers is something that comes across really strongly. I think some of the contributions that draw more heavily on participatory research with children are really powerful in highlighting this and also highlight some of the issues that that we were just discussing around child work and how this plays a really double role. On the one hand, it can be really positive. It can give children skills. It gives them something to contribute to the family and they feel appreciated. On the other hand, it might go at the expense of going to school. Um, It might be harmful or exploitative. And so there's a need to find a balance there. But I think it really highlights that um, there's no simple solution or a simple picture what it looks like, and therefore no simple solution to what uh, we need to do to reduce all forms of child poverty. In, In the book, and indeed in your own research, Uh, What are some of the things that surprised you? About living in child poverty, about children living in child poverty. About children, yeah. Well, some of the um, areas of research that I focused on is looking more closely at the differences or the overlap between living in 
income poverty and experiencing deprivations in, in other areas in, in life. And a lot of the research now shows that these two are not necessarily the same. So you can live in a family that doesn't have that much income, but still do quite well. Um, and the other way around, it might be the case um, that you, that you um, don't go to school, even though the family earns enough money. And it's been quite interesting to see what kind of aspects play a role. As in many cases, it's very context specific, but very often it's also around the structural situation that families and children find themselves in. So whether there is access to school or high quality schooling or access to health services and high quality services, so whether it makes it worthwhile to send children to school. And I think that's important to point out because there's a risk in a lot of the research that looks at the difference between living in monetary poverty or so-called multidimensional poverty that we focus very much on parents and families and whether they do or want the right thing for their children. I think what I found in my research is that in most cases parents want the right thing for their children. In most cases they also know what, what is right, but there are other issues that prevent them from taking those positive actions and a lot of times these issues are structural and so in doing this research and highlighting what we need to do to tackle child poverty we need to emphasize the structural constraints rather than focus primarily on what's happening within the family and therefore run into a blame game if you want if you want to mm. in terms of um, I'm parents. I'm always struck in England but in uh, in Kenya and other places where I've worked, how a lot depends on how competent the mother is and the father. And sometimes a very competent mother can succeed in very difficult circumstances, limited food, limited opportunities, possibly two or three other jobs in addition. Did that issue of differences in maternal competence or mother's competence emerge? It did in some of the qualitative research and not so much competence, but also confidence in taking on these different roles, both in paid work, unpaid work, caring for children. But at the same time, I wouldn't overemphasize that aspect because if we do, there is a, there is a risk that we say, well, it's, it's because the mother isn't competent enough that the child isn't doing well enough. I don't think we should be asking mothers to multitask and have two paid jobs while at the same time sweeping the floors and doing the dishes and washing up at night without support from other family members, i.e. their partners, or men particularly. We have to be very careful not to raise expectations in that matter. We need to make sure that there is a context and a structure that makes it possible for everybody to raise their children in a good way, whether or not they're super competent or just competent. Average competent, yes. Addis <laughs> is, of course, the uh, home of the ECA, the Economic Commission for Africa, and for that matter, the Organization of African Union States. There's often meetings being held with representatives or prime ministers from all over Africa. Might one use the contacts with uh, the president, the prime minister to say, would he devote a morning or an afternoon where these issues could be presented to uh, heads of state to see if they could be mobilized. 
I'm going to ask you both. Uh, I don't know who wants to begin on that. Well, I can begin by saying that this book comes out of a conference that we did two years ago at Eka in Addis Ababa. So location-wise, we were already there. We started there and we had the Minister of Children and Women Affairs open the conference. Uh, so we definitely um, made a start. It would be great if we could get the Prime Minister to put this on the agenda and if this could form some impetus in, in doing that, of course. What about IDS? How do you think IDS should take the issues of children and the findings of your book? I think some of the findings in the book will be relevant to some of the work that um, is going on and will also start at IDS, particularly around um, youth employment, child work, child labor. So um, we have a program that started in, in South Asia, but we will also start a new program in relation to agriculture in Africa. Mm that explores this issue of uh, children working and whether or not that's a, it's a good thing in support of their, their families and themselves, or to what extent it might be harmful, what children themselves perceive as harmful work, as, as exploitative work, and whether some of the international frameworks as well as national legislation can take those voices into account um, more seriously. At present, there's quite a rigorous way of Looking at the issue, child work is generally seen as a bad thing, and I think in many cases for good reasons, but often it's also allowing children to support their families and their own lives, and there isn't much of an alternative either. So looking at that from a more nuanced perspective, I think is already flagged in this book, in some of the programs um, that are being analyzed and considered, and we can take further in, in the work here at IDS. Uh, Yisek, is a child working and bringing in income an unqualified positive in terms of getting reducing poverty? Yeah, it should be context-specific, and that's why when you have a longitudinal study, you see different directions, how this impacts. For instance, we have some cases of children who subsidize themselves, girls, for instance, generating some income and investing in their education, supporting themselves, and who finished the university now. And most of, but most of them, they have not only just subsidized their development, but also supported their families, which is difficult in some ways. The resource is very limited, and they just spend a lot of time just generating income. But if they invest on themselves, then there will be a good outcome. UNICEF, I think, formally says that uh, child labor is understandable and okay if one it is not keeping children out of school and two it is not doing harm uh, to their bodies or their health yeah is that more or less the position that the book takes partly i think what the book focuses on more is also taking into account what children's aspirations are and apart from education this this notion of um harm or um, whether it's bad or not for children to listen more carefully at children themselves and how they see this. So one of the issues with the definitions is that harmful, what is harmful is not really well defined. And even if we do find a definition for this, it, there is a risk that it will be from adults' perspectives. So understanding more closely what children themselves find important will be uh, crucial in, in 
taking it forward. And so it's great that UNICEF has these two criteria beyond a simple age criterion, but it doesn't necessarily include children's voices and, and how they... Very good it. point. Um, what next? How can... Well, what next in terms of research, but how can this knowledge be used to shape the future? So I think this research can be taken forward in various ways. That's also how the book was, was initiated and set up. Firstly, of course, there's the research side, and we hope that some of the contributions that are in here inspire further research, either on the issues or the interventions that are studied in the book. There are a lot of um, studies in the book around uh, social protection interventions, so so-called cash transfers or cash plus programs that provide families with cash support and other types of supports, uh, such as um, change communication or sensitization. And there's a lot of learning around that at the moment, what the impact might be on nutrition outcomes for children or maybe early marriage. There are some contributions in the book. Already that work has been taken forward and we hope that this builds the body of evidence around how those interventions help families, what works better, what doesn't work, because there's also important learning around that, and we often ignore it because we don't like to hear so much what doesn't work or doesn't work so well. So to build that body of evidence and take it forward, um, that's from a research side. From a policy side, we hope that this book also gives some more practical ideas of what might be um, might be done. There are some uh, chapters in the book around youth employment programs, for example, uh, for example in South Africa, that look very specifically at programs that were implemented in communities by NGOs and didn't focus so much on RCT-type impact evaluations, but looked a lot more at the nitty-gritty of implementation how they interacted with young people and what worked in those interactions. And what came out of those um, findings was that relationships between young people, young people and their peers, as well as the community and, and the, the program um, that they were part of, were very important to make them work. So there's some very specific issues regarding implementation, some lessons learned that we hope will already inspire some of the programming and, and policy making at this stage. Isaac, do you want to say any further things about the book and how it might be taken forward? Uh, I think it is should be maybe of its kind the first time I've mean, been having a lot of research from different directions of Africa. So we, the major challenge in how we have in Africa is understanding child poverty by itself. So the methodologies themselves and how to respond in terms of policy and intervention. So I would have at about three directions of impact. The first one will be, it will be some input for some researchers to do more. Still there are some researchers coming to us and asking. So that would be one area, still continue to understand what child poverty is through the eyes and the experience of children themselves, which is very important. And the second one is, I think the policies have been done copying from the child rights and other things, but not really from contextualized understanding of your area, for instance, child labor or other things, early marriage, a lot of things. So the pol for policy people, I think there will create an appetite for more support of research. 
and then revising their policies. Still now we are planning to, in FIPA to have the policy review of the child. So we will use from this one. The implementers, the NGOs and the UN agencies, I think still they need strong evidence to have proper programming and implementation. So that I think a diverse um, use of the book is very evident here. Thank you. Any final words, Katie? Well, I would like to point out two things that we don't have in the book, which I think is important to focus on in any future efforts uh, by, by anybody really working on child poverty and children. One is this issue around missing children, if you will. So a lot of the work in this book is based on um, mixed methods, quantitative data, qualitative data, but also data that is out there and is relatively easy to collect. So we have different groups of children that are being included and that we look at, but there's also groups of children that we don't have any perspective on. And unfortunately, there are groups of children that are often left out of consideration because it's difficult to find them and difficult to, to, um, to work with and do research with. So children with disabilities, although I think there the evidence is growing, but particularly children living outside of family um, care in institutions living on the streets, we have too little evidence too little understanding of the situation of children, what the, their issues are, how we might help them, how they might help themselves. And also within this book, we have too little information to um, contribute to that conversation. So I think that's one area where we need to do a lot more. And that requires a lot of effort and also um, resources in terms of, of doing the research. And the other area that we don't really look into and that's crucial for, unfortunately, I think a growing group of children is uh, living in conflict situations and also being affected by migration. Now, for conflict situations, I think by and large we can say that that has negative effects on children's lives. Um, different context situations, uh, conflict situations might be different and we need to understand how it, it, it um affect children and also how they can be supported both within short crises as well as more protracted crises. In the other case of children um, more migrating or being on the move, there might be positive and negative effects. I think we need to explore more. Children migrating themselves, either without their parents or with family maybe, or being left behind, which we see in, in many contexts as well. And there's positives and negatives there often. If they are left behind, their family members are somewhere else where they might earn an income that can support them through remittances. But there's the issue of maybe being left with family or, or non-relatives where they don't feel so safe or are at risk, for example. Um, so these are two areas that we don't explore we had limited space in this book, uh, where I think more effort needs to be made. Well, good luck for the future work. I hope a future book and perhaps future activities in Ethiopia and many other places. Thank you very much, Yusek Teferi and Katie Rowland. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. Follow us on Twitter at IDS underscore UK or visit IDS.ac.uk.